few weeks ago, um, Jerry and I had started looking at a series of DVDs that deal with Christian apologetics. And the very first of the series in these lessons start off with this very question, what is truth? And I thought, you know, what a simple question. Yes, it may sound so profound, but how simple is that question, what is truth? And then you stop to think about it, wrap your mind around it, and try to verbally explain what truth is. And it may not seem as easy as you think, at least not initially. And so it was that we went through the DVD and the question was asked and you got to hear all kinds of answers. And you thought, how in the world did they come up with that? Now, I may not be able to concretely uh, have it myself, but that doesn't sound right. And that doesn't sound right until so you go on and on. And I found that very intriguing. What is truth? That's exactly Pilate's response to Jesus when Jesus said, it is for this purpose I was born and for this purpose I came into this world, to testify to the truth. Well, what is it? You notice that Jesus never did answer his question, what is it? Maybe because Pilate was not really interested in knowing the answer. And so the question has been going on for centuries, if not millennium, with regard. It is for this reason I was born and for this reason I came to the world to testify to the truth. Sounds like a court setting to me. And how ironic because he was on trial. How ironic that testimonies were being presented against Jesus Christ. And all those testimonies were based upon what? Lies. Every one of them. And yet Jesus Christ said, here's why I came into the world. I came to make a testimony. I came to testify to the truth. And what was the testimony that he was coming to proclaim? That he's the Christ. He is the Son of God who's going to die, will raise again as he told his own disciples, and reign at the right hand of the throne of God. That's the testimony that he came to deliver. And so it is with that in mind that we ask this question. How do we answer it? How do we answer the question, what is truth? And I'm hoping that every one of us will be able to, to understand this. Because I believe that when the question is just asked and then it's answered maybe from the pulpit, you've not been challenged. But when you strive to answer with your own words... I believe you'll be the better for it. Because you will have to struggle within to find out, you know, where is this answer coming from? How am I going to know how to answer this question? You know, do I bring up my Webster's Dictionary or whatever dictionary that you have today? Good luck. <laughs> but when you open up God's Word, we are told, like in Colossians chapter 2, and we'll come back here to John chapter 18, but I want you to look real quickly over at Colossians 2 because this passage of Scripture is especially important for, for those in Christ to stand firm in the truth of God's Word and the things that we've been taught. Paul says to the saints there, Beware lest anyone cheat you through 
philosophy and empty deceit. According to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. And when we go further on in chapter 2 and verse 23, we are told that here are those who proclaim such wisdom, and all they are are nothing but an appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement. Sounds good on the surface. But these are nothing more than strangleholds to your faith. Or we're told in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 20, Paul says to Timothy there, avoid worldly and empty chatter and uh, the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge. There are many individuals proclaiming Christ today and it's nothing else but false knowledge. Those who are proclaiming salvation, but it's false. And so we want to ask and be able to answer the question, what is truth? How do we know that what we believe is really the truth? Is it because it's what God's Word says? If that's the case, brethren, why is it that we have so many different beliefs? Last week we went from Romans 14, and we looked at the areas where we have opinions. These opinions may even be looked upon as doctrine, where there is a truth side and the error side. And of course, Paul was saying there was truth and truth. There was yea and yea. But what happens when we come to some of these very fundamental questions that are found in Scripture, where there is a right and a wrong, where there is salvation and damnation? How do you know that what you believe is really the truth? And so these are the things that we're going to be looking at. I want to start off with um, Barna. How many of you ever heard of Barna? It's a research group in the name of religion, particularly in Christianity. They've been going on since the mid-90s. And they started researching from the early 90s. Well, here's something that Barna had in a survey took place in 1991, where the question is asked, is there any, no such thing as absolute truth? That's the way they phrased the question. There is no such thing as absolute truth. How do you respond? Yes or no? 66% of Americans said, yeah, there is no such thing. In other words, there were about 33, 34% that says there is something as absolute truth. That number jumps to 72% that says there is no such thing as absolute truth. 18 to 25-year-olds in 1991 said there was no such thing as absolute truth. 72. Only 28% would say yes. You go a little further, look at the number where it's most conservative. 59% of 55-year-olds and older said there is no such thing. Still a majority in this country. What have we come to where a majority of Americans who profess to be Christians, was it like 80% or more in this country in 1999 would believe themselves to be Christians? And more than half of U.S. citizens, which means basically more than half of those professing Christianity, don't even believe in absolute truth. That's what these numbers are telling us. And we fast forward to, to looking at all these questions and, and the way they're stated here are four ways they were saying there's no absolute truth. Truth is whatever you believe. I believe it's okay for me to steal because I'm hungry and you have so much, you probably got it by ill-gotten means. It's okay. 
I call it hooray for Robin Hood syndrome. So it's okay. Or some just simply say there is no absolute truth. If there were such a thing as absolute truth, how could we know what it is? These are questions and statements that those even professing Christianity ask. How do we know? We've got 4,000 plus denominations professing Christianity. How do we know what's right and what's wrong? Or people who believe in absolute truth are dangerous. I tell you what. This last one right here, I'm seeing the fruit of this right here. In this country, in the name of Christianity, well, you know, when you start getting to the absolutes, you're dangerous. And that's why we have gay marriages, among many other signs of what happens when truth goes from being absolute to relative. You know, what's true for me, at least my perception of truth, not necessarily your perception of truth. And I remember this one woman in this DVD. She's supposed to be some kind of religious leader to what looks like a church. The most deceptive words if you're not paying attention. You know, truth is coming through all these different windows. And we're seeing but reflections and refractions. And so what I get is just a little bit of the truth from here and a little bit of truth from there. You know what she was talking about? A little bit of truth from the the Bible, a little bit of truth from Buddhism, a little bit of truth from Islam, from the Sutra Scriptures, with Hinduism. That's her perception. That's her quote-unquote her reality as she sees it, if you will. And so we start blurring the lines of the the actual definition of truth based upon our feelings and emotions and and not about some sort of standard that we should be able to have. Well, fast forward then almost one generation later, 2009. This is the most recent research on a question that's very similar. They just flip the words around a little bit. How many of you believe there is absolute moral truth? 34%. The number it basically flipped around but the numbers are identical 17 years later. In 17 years, there has not been an inroads into more people in this country believing in absolute truth. Some might say, but it's not worse. As if that's a moral victory. What's been going on for 17 years? What have we been teaching? What have those who believe in moral truth and absolute truth Teach their children. We're not seeing the numbers improve at all. Hardly any difference at all. The numbers look almost identical between 1991 and 2009. And what has that been then as an indictment against us? Is that we're not really teaching very fundamental questions. You know, we might have all kinds of things that when it comes to maybe some things that we believe among brethren on certain issues, and boy, we can spout them. But when it comes to very basic, fundamental questions, we're lost. We have difficulty answering them. And we talk about wanting the meat of God's Word when we have a hard time even swallowing milk. Get this. We're going to look at what the word biblical worldview means, because that is not a term we're not very familiar with. It's one of those kind of denominational type 
words and phrases that, that we don't hear too often. A biblical worldview. 9% of U.S. Americans, of the 80 or 90% that believe they're Christians, hold on to what's called a biblical worldview. So here are those professing to be Christians, and look at what a quote-unquote biblical worldview represents. Believe in absolute moral truth. Okay? If you believe in absolute moral truth, you have one of the, the signs and symptoms, if you will. If you get all of these, you are a quote-unquote person who believes through the lens of the Scriptures as absolute truth. So here's the biblical worldview. Believing that absolute moral truth exists, that the Bible is totally accurate in all its principles that it teaches, that Satan is considered a real being, not merely symbolic. A person cannot earn their way into heaven by trying to be good or to do good works. In other words, it is not something you earn. That Jesus Christ lived a sinless life on earth. And finally, that God is the all-knowing, all-powerful creator of the world who still rules the universe today. If you believe in every single one of these this way, according to Barna, this is Barna's premise, if you will, of a world, a biblical worldview, then you meet the criteria. 9% of U.S. citizens in 2009 meet this statistic based upon these, this preface, if, if you will. So you got 80% or more saying, I'm a Christian. But out of that, a great majority don't even believe this for however we break these things down to make up what's called a biblical worldview. So you get an idea, even if you can uh, fight and debate over some of these points here, within these points, it's, these are basic stuff. And many professing Christianity don't even believe in these things. So here's why this research matters and how it goes back to what we're talking about in, in the Bible. According to Barna, why it matters... Barna's research has discovered that there are unusually large differences in behavior related to matters such as media use, profanity, gambling, alcohol, honesty, civility, sexual choices. This almost seems like a no-brainer. If you believe this to be absolute truth and you realize that homosexuality is sinful, do you suppose your sexual choice would be influenced? course do you believe that if marriage is between one man and one woman just as the bible states that that would influence you that adultery is wrong it's sinful that murder is wrong and so you go on and on of course when you look at all these things they're going to be influenced based upon your quote-unquote worldview how do you view truth Further, Barna concluded by noting that the lack of movement, there's a difference in one generation to the next, the lack of movement in the worldview status of adults reflects that the children are not provided with the basic ability to think in ways that correspond to foundational biblical teachings. So I did an experiment. We did it over this weekend. We had teenagers that were having, you know, picking up where the boys left off in our teenage Bible studies, and I thought, you know, this is the very first um, teenage study that we're having this, this weekend as we kick things off. And 
I've decided to do this video, this first lesson in this DVD. And before we started the video, I asked, we had about 25 in the house, asked everyone in the house, what is truth? And, you know, you think maybe some would be shy, so they're not going to answer. And whatever. Well, maybe if I say something, it sounds kind of silly. It doesn't sound really smart, like a good answer. That I don't want to open my mouth. So I decided to pick on someone individually that I knew would be bold enough to try and answer it. And I asked the question, what is truth? And he sat there for a minute, <laughs> trying his best to muster up some sentence. Proof's in the pudding. We have difficulty with fundamentals. And a fundamental question like what is truth that is not able to be answered by this group. So now I want this experiment to go a little further right here. How would you answer, excuse me, the question what is truth? Do you have something in your mind that's concrete that says this is what truth is and I can back up what I'm saying to be Accurate. Be almost one of those things. If I had sheets of paper, I would love to just pass it out right now. Have you answer it? We'll collect it all, and at the end of the sermon, I get to read all these things and see where you stood on how you would answer that question. You know, would you sign someone else's name to it? <laughs> question was not able to be answered, and even when I pressed further, there was no conclusive answer, and it was because of this. Even within the teenagers from like high school age and, and college age students, they all realize, you know what? As simple as this question may seem on the surface, we all had difficulty answering the question. Maybe this is something we need to be looking at and trying to kind of put our finger on, wrap our minds around it, understand what we're talking about when we use the word truth, which can be used so flippantly. Or loosely. Or for that matter, inaccurately. So, that's what we're looking at this morning. We're looking at the question, what is truth? And what we're going to do is turn to the Bible. Go figure. And I believe we're turning to the Bible for this reason. Because within the word truth, there's got to be a source. And I believe the answer is right here in Scripture for us. And so we're asking the question, what is truth? And we're looking at it. And here's, this is my definition after I thought through and thought through, and it, it took a while, in fact, I refined it and then went on and refined it some more, and it's a little bit differently than what you saw in that video. It's a little different than, is it uh, Focus on the Family that put on this, this series? I believe, as, as can be viewed in and through Scripture, and we'll see it tested, that truth is what we must conform to based upon the character, the will, and revelation of God and His Word. That's what truth is. It's not a matter of, well, this is my truth. I've gone through and, and tried the very best that I can. How can I actually apply this? Real practically speaking, so that are there holes in what's being said? And when you combine this with like the old dictionaries of years gone by, Noah Webster's, and he, this person uses uh, the 1828 dictionary. It's very similar to what you're seeing here. I just kind of refined it, what I see in Scripture. Tested in Scripture. And I believe that's what truth is. 
it is that which we must conform to. I mean, that's easy enough. I mean, whatever, whatever truth is, we know that we have to conform to the truth. Right? <laughs> but what is it based upon? What's the source of truth? And I believe what we see in truth is the very character of God. If we look at truth, we see God Himself. If you see God and however He is displayed, His nature, His character, then what you're seeing is truth. And furthermore, when He reveals something, then what He says, based upon His nature of being true, is taken as truth. And so, let's see how this unfolds. Love. And I use the, the question based upon this, you know, love, flip the coin, evil or good? It's heads. Love is good. So God says, you know, love one another. It's right. Why is love true and not a lie, not false? Well, because God's character is one of love, right? We're told in 1 John chapter 4, verses 8 following. I want you to look at this text. Eventually, we'll get back to Pilate. Look at 1 John chapter 4. In fact, 1 John would have been great throughout the, the letter for this very point. We're told in 1 John chapter 4, beginning here in verse 8, it says, well, let me back up to verse, um, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. There's a source of love. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God. For God is love. We sing this song. Do we sing it with this conviction that what is being said is true? In this, the love of God was manifested toward us. That God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Here's why love is good, because God is love. That's why love is right. It is the reflection, the very face of God, if you will, the very nature of God. It's his being. And if God is love, then love is true. And hatred is wrong and false and evil. So we get that. How about lying? How do we know that lying is sin? That same flip of the coin? Lying is good. Tails. <laughs> or is it because God is true? In Him, He cannot do anything but tell the truth. Because that's what we're told, right? In Hebrews chapter 6, verse 18. Right? It is impossible for God to lie. It goes against His very nature. So if God speaks, He cannot speak anything but what? Truth. Therefore, the opposite of truth is this word called lying. Lying is a sin. It's the opposite of truth. And so that's why we know that lying is sin. It's the opposite of the nature of God. Go a little further. I used this this morning in our Bible class. The world is flat. A statement like this. And I used the illustration how we can actually go to God's Word... And we would have inferences, and some would even go on to say necessary inferences, that the world is flat because there's four corners. 
And, you know, four corners, that's not round. The world is flat. We will die if we fall off the edge of the world. But we come to God's word and we read in Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 22 that he sits above the circle of the earth. Here's a statement given about the earth. Well, is it flat or is it circular? What is it? The Bible is inconsistent. In fact, the Bible contradicts itself, does it not? No. We do a whole lot of metaphorical and figurative speech when we speak to each other, right? We use a whole lot of phrases about some things. When we talk about individuals and we give descriptions. If I said let's hit the road, you would not go outside unless you're not from here and don't know those phrases. You would not go on outside and just start hitting the road. You would think me crazy for telling you to hit, let's hit the road. Why? I remember the first time when I came to the mainland. Hey, we're going to carry on over to the store. <laughs> At my perception. <laughs> I know I'm not heavy, but <laughs> going to carry me? We're fixing to go. What's broken? Why are we, you know, why are we leaving? I mean, it's these kinds of simple sayings that we just take for granted in our vernacular. Same thing with the four corners of the earth. Everywhere you go, there's God and his angels. The four corners of the earth. But when we see simple statements, you know, does God really sit? Does he, God really have a throne? When we talk about all the instruments in heaven that the angelics will play upon, I mean, are we, the spiritual realm having all these physical things, we're going to walk the streets of gold? We know contextually, right? At least as we discern, we should be able to learn contextually. So when we have statements like this, we can discern and tell whether or not something is true or not. Now, that doesn't make it always as easy as some of these illustrations. But over the course of time, we gain better perception, better ability to discern truth from lies. And so if we use the illustration about this, the bottom line is we come back to God himself. Jesus said in John 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He says he is the truth. Go to John chapter 1, verse 14, verse 17, following into second chapter. And what does it say? Verse 9 of, of, of John chapter 1, speaking of John the Baptist. He's preparing the way for truth. John says that when Jesus came to the world, you know, the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Truth comes through him, the source, God himself. And so when Jesus spoke, he spoke not as like the authority of those Pharisees or the scribes. But he spoke from himself. He spoke with the authority of truth as the one who can speak nothing but the truth. And we are told to conform ourselves to whom? Jesus Christ. Romans 8 verse 29. Conforming ourselves to truth. To God himself. And so these are some of the things that we look at in scripture. And we see then that truth does in fact begin with God. 
That's what we're told. Jesus is the express image. Hebrews chapter 1, verse, verse 3. The express image of God. Well, in God, he cannot lie. Therefore, what he says and who he is represents truth. And if Jesus is the express image or the exact representation, which we looked at a few months ago, of God, then we know that. We know because we're told in Matthew 1, verse 23, that he is Emmanuel, which means God is with us. Truth is with us. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus Christ, Logos, the Word, is with us. He came in expressing the very nature of God, expounding the very character of God. What he's doing is he's expounding upon truth. And the statements that come from God being true. And that's why he says, I am the way and I am the truth. So Jesus claims to be the truth. And that, as a result, means that God is the source of all truth. It's not a matter of, well, you know, I think this and I think that. And, you know, what was true for, looking at Jonathan, true for Jonathan, but eh, not for me. True for everyone else, but my circumstance is different. Truth is the same. It's a matter of whether we're going to accept it or not. And as fundamental and easy as it seems from this standpoint, how do you discern? You discern beginning with God Himself. So that when we open up His Word, we open up the very nature of God, the very character of God, and what He deems to be right. Because of that character. Because of His nature. So that when He speaks to us and tells us about what we ought to be doing, it is based upon him being true. And that is why Jesus said, You shall know the truth in John chapter 8, verse 32. And the truth shall set you free. Is it the truth that we partake of the Lord's Supper every single Lord's Day? That's why we're set free? Is that what truth means? Or was it the fact that Jesus Christ is the truth and He's the one setting you free? Look a little further. How do we react when we're faced with God's word and we're trying to stand for what is right? Delineate with that which is false. Or even that which has an appearance of truth, but is falsely called knowledge. How do we respond? How do we react? How do we decide? And I believe it's found in the very beginning of Scripture. From the very beginning, when, when the scene is unfolded and we have the creation of mankind Right? Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. On the sixth day, he creates man. Genesis chapter 2, you get an introduction to man himself. And what God has done is set him up in this glorious garden, if you will. And the relationship between God and man. And God says, you can do everything except you cannot eat the tree of knowledge of good and evil. You eat this tree, and I'm telling you the truth, you will die. Now, that's not word for word what he said, but that's really what he's saying. You eat this, you die. Chapter 3, verse 1 comes along. And what do we have? We have someone challenging the statement of God. You eat this fruit, you will die. Has God said that if you eat of this fruit, you will die? You know, what did God say? Yeah. In fact, what does Eve go on further to say in verse 4? In fact, can't even touch it, lest we die. 
And then the following verse, he says, you will not surely die. So God is saying, you eat of the fruit, you're going to die. Satan says, or that serpent of old says, you're not going to die. Who are you going to believe? Verse 6. Well, I was looking at that fruit. I saw the possibilities. What it could do, it could make me wise. It looks good to eat. Everything that appealed to the flesh, everything that appealed to pride, 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 following, everything that appealed to our baseness, if you will, we bought hook, line, and sink. And so we believed the lie. We believed Satan. And rejected the truth. Of what God that's, that's from the very beginning. It's been going on since then. Every one of us. When we do things that we know to be wrong, why do we do them? Jonathan mentioned in the prayer. Because of those temptations. And we give in to those temptations. We give in to the lies. We think they're going to bring something good to us. And we find ourselves in want. So we believe the lie like in Genesis 3, 1 through 5 or 1 through 6. And today the same thing is true. We exchange the truth for a lie. Look at what it says in Romans chapter 1, verses 20 through 25. Look at what it says there. Notice the, the contrast and notice the words attached between truth and lies. Romans chapter 1. We read this passage so often. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen. Maybe those invisible attributes include truth, among others. You cannot see truth itself, I guess. You can see the fruit of it. But we see his invisible attributes being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. We look at creation, there's got to be a creator. We look at these laws, there's got to be the lawgiver. Whatever it may be, we see these attributes. But notice what he goes on to say. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but became futile in their own thoughts. Foolish hearts were darkened. They professed to be wise, but they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man. So I look at this piece of wood that we just used this week for camping. And we burn this wood. And this is the same wood that I'm going to ask to save me. That's what we've done when we reject God. It goes on to be very clear. Therefore, in verse 24, God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for the lie. That's really what it's all about. Everything that you can imagine that you can go in Scripture, if you're not accepting the truth, you're accepting the lie. That's what we have. And that's why 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, when you read verses 8 following, God gives us over to our lives. If our lusts, the flesh takes over and says, this is what I want to do, and I justify it. I can even justify it to be godly. God's saying, you don't want to accept my truth? Have your lie. 
I made you with free will. I want you to choose to volunteer of your own accord to accept me on my terms. And I am a jealous God. I want all of you. But if you're not going to accept me on my terms, the truths that I give to you, for the very sake of you being sanctified by this truth, you don't want it, I made you to make that choice. If you don't accept it, then I'll give you over to your lusts, your desires. That's what Paul said to the church at Thessalonica as he did at the church at Rome. But look at these truth claims, if you will. Look at some of the passages that we often use when it comes to fellowship issues. 1 John chapter 2. I want you to look at the text here. First John chapter 2, beginning in verse 21. John says, I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and that no lie is of the truth. What is this truth? John is referring to. Is he referring to some specific teaching about how the church should worship God? What is this truth he's talking about? What's the context? Again, verse 21. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and no lie is of the truth. Who is a liar? But he who denies Jesus is the Christ. He is Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. He who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. Very clear. Going on. Therefore, let that abide in you. What? Truth. Let truth abide in you. Which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. What was it that they heard in the beginning? The Gospel. The power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. That's what they would believe from the very beginning. They heard that Jesus was the Christ. The good news was He was the Christ. And they believed it. He goes on to say in verse um, 25, And this is the promise that He has promised us, eternal life. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. We've got that promise. Acts chapter 2, verse 38, we have that promise. So these things I've written to you in verse 26, concerning those who try what? To deceive you. There's the lie. I've written to you concerning those who try to deceive you, but the anointing which you have received from Him abides in you. Go back to Acts 2 and verse 38. What do you receive? When you believe the truth of this gospel message. The anointing which you have received from Him abides in you, and you do not need that anyone teach you but at the same anointing teaches you, or as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things, and is true, and is not a lie, and just as it is taught you, you will abide in Him. So we're told very clearly, Jesus is the Christ. Don't let anyone deceive you. If you do not believe that Jesus is the Christ, you are not only a liar against the truth, you're antichrist. Simple statement. Very explicit. Go on to chapter 4, verse 3. Back it up to verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits. What are we testing them? What's the standard of measure? 
Test the spirits whether they are of God. That's what you do. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. What is the Spirit of God? But the Spirit of truth. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. That's how you test the spirits. Are they of God or not? I believe that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. According to what God's Word teaches, I believe the truth. If I said to you, you know, I believe that Jesus was a great guy, great man, great prophet. But you know, I've studied really hard. And I've studied with the best of philosophers. And you know that no good thing can come from anyone in the flesh. Well, we know God is spirit, right? So Jesus Christ really had to be spirit. Couldn't have been flesh. It just doesn't match up with my belief of truth. As this person would say, that's a lie. I'm not accepting that Jesus came in the flesh. I'm condemned. That simple belief. Every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. This is the spirit of Antichrist. Very similar to what was just said in chapter 2. The one who did not believe Jesus as the Christ. Now he's saying, if you don't believe that he came in the flesh, is also Antichrist. You're against God. You're against his truth claim, if you will. You're against everything that Jesus came into the world to be and the reasons for those that being are sacrificed. He condemns sin how? In and through the flesh. That flesh is important that he came into this world. Humbled himself like a man, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. It's important to the doctrine of Christ. If we don't believe that he's born in the flesh, we are told in verse 10 and 11 not to have fellowship with one, not even to eat with such a one. You mean if I don't believe that Jesus is born in the flesh and I profess myself to be a Christian, you're going to withdraw from me? Yeah, that's what John says. That's the truth of God's word. Speaking by way of divine inspiration, there's that line in the sand. And I have nothing to do with you. You don't believe because you know what you're going to do. Your cancer is going to cause others in the body to deny him as coming in the flesh. Let me add a little parenthesis. How many of you heard Second John verse nine, ten, eleven used for something much differently than than this? Joel has. I've heard it twenty something years. We use it for if we do the Lord's Supper in the wrong direction. You're lost. You're not abiding in the doctrine of Christ. It's amazing how specific we can get with something that is dealing contextually with a very simple claim, who Jesus Christ is. Brethren, what are we doing with God's Word? But mishandling the truth. When we use it, or in this case, abuse it. I want you to stop. Look at a very simple claim. Jesus said in Mark chapter 16 and verse 16, He who believes, because He's telling His disciples, go into all the world, preach the gospel. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. 
The Logos is saying a statement. Are you going to accept it as truth? Or are you going to somehow water it down? You know, if, if I believe that Jesus is the Christ, but I'm baptized, somehow I'm working for my salvation. And remember that beginning of the biblical worldview, and one of those things says you cannot work for your salvation, so therefore, the last thing I want to be guilty of is working for my salvation. Well, what is the work of God but to believe in Him whom God has sent? John chapter 6. To believe in Him, believe in Jesus Christ. If you believe in Him, what are you going to do? You're going to listen to His commandments. First John chapter 5, verses 1, 2, and 3 tells us, and His commandments are not burdensome. The world says something different. There's no need to believe. And then you have the worldly among those professing Christianity saying, well, we believe, but we don't need to be baptized. That's a lie. That's deception. God said it. It's true. In fact, it was said in imperative form for us grammarians. I don't even know. I can't, I'm not even a grammarian. I don't even know if it's a grammarian or grammatic. I mean, never mind. It's a lie. Simple English. It's a charge. You believe. It's a charge. You are baptized into Christ. Peter says, for the remission of sins. To have those sins washed away. That's the reason why I come to the Lord and believing on Him, I'm baptized into the likeness of His death. That now when I come up out of that watery grave, it's because it's good and clear conscience. I'm convinced enough to actually do something about what I believe to be true, that I do His will. Real simple. And that's what you need to do. That simplicity is found right here. We move from simply accepting, which when I became a Christian, I simply accepted. You know, I did not know that the Bible really is the Word of God. I just accepted it. Am I the only one that's ever just accepted it, never really challenged whether or not this is the Word of God? I did. I was told I was going to lose my soul and I didn't want to go to hell. You know what I did? Tell me what to do. I'm going to do it. Okay, you've got, you got to go in some water. I'm going to do that. I don't know why, but I'm going to do it because that's what this guy said. I didn't challenge him. I just did it. You know why I did it like that? You know, like, you know how babes, you know the faith of babes, they just do as they're told if they are trusting their mom and dad? you got the picture of the baby doing stuff they would never do. Carolyn loves jumping off a couch, flying into my arms. Don't think of things. You know daddy's going to save her. Daddy's not going to just go, whoops. <laughs> she knows. She trusts me. I just took it and accepted it. I'll tell you, over the years, I am absolutely convicted that the Bible is God's Word. Now, you know, my conviction may not always come through and shine in every aspect of my life. But it convicts me to the point where I talk to my brothers and sisters in Christ about working out your salvation with fear and trembling. Convicted enough that I'll go and talk to strangers. Knowing that I'm going to be condemned possibly within their hearts or maybe outright. Knowing that people are going to laugh at me or Jerry. It's easy to laugh at Jerry. Can laugh at us for professing a belief so strong. That we talk to complete strangers. Now listen, I know that's one thing I don't want to do. I don't like being rejected. In fact, I hate it. I'd rather be encouraged than discouraged. 
But I'm so convinced that there are souls who are lost in this world. I'm really able to go and say to them, here's the love of God. Salvation is through Jesus Christ. Knowing that this Muslim is going to condemn me. Knowing that someone with the Hindu scriptures and believing in the sutra scriptures, they're going to condemn me. Or knowing that someone has accepted a lie in the name of Christianity, they're going to condemn me. When you move from simply accepting to being convicted, your life changes. That's called transformation. That's what Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, which we were speaking of a couple of weeks ago, is talking about. Being transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may approve or prove what is that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. You're no longer just a hearer only, but a doer of the will of God. Not just coming to church, but living like the church. That's what believing a truth and having conviction about it does to your life. And that's what we see here in Scripture. It is because of our convictions we cannot help but speak. We cannot help but move according to truth. You know why Muslims do what they do? They believe that prophet Muhammad, they believe him to be a prophet. And they believe what he has written down is scripture, it is truth. But Jesus says, no man can come to the Father except through me. Who are you going to believe? The prophet Muhammad? If he was even a prophet. Or are you going to believe Jesus Christ himself who said, I am the word. I was with God in the beginning. In fact, let me tell you, I am God. Just the way John wrote it in Scripture. Who are you going to believe? It's going to move you. 